Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Two Old Heads. Um, with myself and Mike, and this week we've got, depending on which side you're on, either the the latest legend or a complete busybody, Martin Keatons. Martin, welcome. Man of the man of the yeah. moment. Just so that everyone is aware of this, we're recording this afternoon of Sunday, and the program itself won't go out until the Tuesday, and. It looks as though Lady Carmichael may render her decisions in writing, perhaps Monday, perhaps Tuesday. So what we're doing is in advance of what the conclusion of her writing will be, her ruling will be. Dave and I have already said that if we get that information, we may do a short speed dial and comment on it. But for today, Martin, I want to take you back to the two days of hearings that have just taken place. And really just ask your own feelings. You've had so much to do in preparation for this. And then it came to those two days. As you went through that, listening to everything that was going on, how did you? How did it come across for you? Positive, negative? It came across as it was expected. See, obviously you're getting advanced sight of the arguments and writing and things like that. Because what people witnessed over the phone for the last two days are only additions to the existing arguments that are already in place. So yeah. uh, obviously over that longer period, I've ex been exposed to that sort of, um, what's the, the term I would probably be the best for? Arrogant, self-entitled, generally um, obnoxious, looking down on people attitude that we get from government and these sort of things. So it wasn't as much of a shock for me when you heard it on the extension of those arguments verbally, you know, before the court. Um, so, but for the most part, Everything went the way we expected it to go. You obviously have the, and chosen, one of the most able QCs that you could ever have chosen, the Nadian O'Neill. What did you think about the opposition in terms of, not their arguments, because I don't think there were many arguments, just in terms of the quality as measured against Aidan O'Neill? Oh, light years apart. Light years apart. But we chose Aidan O'Neill, O'Neill for a, a very good reason. You don't bring a, a knife to a gunfight. But the, the arguments from the Advocate General and from the Lord Advocate were not up, not up to, you know, not up to high, scra uh, high standard. I mean, the very fact that they've decided throughout all of this that they, they're not actually going to address the matters that were in the opinion and have instead um, focused on a, how, how do I put it, to, focused on a stem of being able to try and get it kicked out or slow it down or delay it or cause expense or try to run our resources out so we'll stop. It just proves that the arguments that we're putting forward are really unarguable. So there is no substantive argument from them. So their entire rebut was based on standing, trying to get it kicked out. Pure and simple. So, yes, you know, uh, their arguments were poor to start with. So... I, I sat down this morning and went through the report of both days, and there's the word that I kept reading: standing. Yes, right. I've had to, I've had to learn what that might mean. Basically, it seems to come down to whether you have sufficient interest in a matter. That's right. Would you like to take us through that from being a busybody on one side, and according to Lady Carmichael on the other side, you were actually recognised as a voter? That's right. The way it works, it used to be that you had to have a deep, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way, but it used to be that you had to have a really deep connection to the subject matter that was, that was uh, being put forward in the court. So you had to show what was called interest and standing. Effectively, you had to show that what the matter was about in court had to directly affect you. In recent years, it's kind of relaxed, you know, a bit, and it's, it's and believe it or not, it's actually Aidan O'Neill who has set quite a lot of the, the precedents that have caused that sort of relaxation in the requirements, um, cases like AXA uh, and other similar cases where he's been involved, have uh, sort of rela uh, relaxed that bar for standing. But really our side, we don't argue, we're not arguing that, we have standing. What we're effectively arguing is that the bar for standing is far too freaking high because it's at such a point where anybody that wasn't sleeping with the director of the company that stole the money, <laughs> you know, um, doesn't have a direct interest, you know, unless they're actually buried inside the organisation or or whatever thing it is that, that's under, under discussion. So the bar was so high that 
that combined with the cost of litigation, public law such as this was just such was out of the reach of the normal person. So there's been some sort of relaxation over the last sort of five to, to sort of three to one years. Um, and that relaxation has really been lowering the standard of the bar. The precedents we were quoting from obviously stretch decades. Um, but effectively what we were saying is that this is an electoral matter in effect. Um, therefore it affects every single elector. So by being um, a, a, tip, a voter that's going to be voting in that election, in this case, the Scottish National Party uh, standing on the platform of a referendum for Scottish independence. If we don't have an answer to that question, then how can we as a voter make an informed decision on whether or not to vote for them? Um, so that, you know, that, that is really what gives us the standing is, is being the, the voter in that case. So it's, but it's a really technical complicated um, set of circumstances when it comes to actually proving your standing before the court. In my view, as a layman, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to government or parliament, every person should have the right to sue them, not sue them, but certainly ask for questions to be answered with regards to them. They should have that right automatically. There shouldn't be a bar that you have to prove it, as long as obviously you're not being vexatious and doing it again and again and again. Um, if it's been one issue and it's been your, you know, your entire life and it's one issue, you should have the right to ask that damn question because you're certainly not going to get the answer if you fill in a petition to the parliament, that's for sure. You know, you're going to get three MSPs on one side that turn around and say, um, in fact, that was the last time we were all together, actually, was outside the Scottish parliament, the three of us together, and yep. at a petition. And what happened in that petition? Well, we walked in and three unionists obviously didn't want it, the petition to progress because that would, you know, screw them in terms of them being able to derive the unionist vote from fighting against independence. But at the same time as well, you had the ones on our side of the argument that just sort of said, oh, no, we better know to move from the party line. So what happened to the petition? It got stopped at the committee stage. Boom, it never made it to the people that they needed to see it. So... Exactly the same thing with this. You've got a choice in this country. If you want to ask something of parliamentarians or you want to ask something of government, and those two choices are simple. You can either write a petition that will be ignored or you can spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands asking the court to ask answer the question for them, You know, especially ones that have been dangling over for, for 22 years. So that's your two choices. That's it when it comes to asking questions of government because if you write to their departments, you're going to get some fluff response back. So... The bar of standing is extremely high. Uh, it has been. It's it's got softened o over the last sort of five to ten years, but ultimately, you have all standing is when you boil it right down. It's proving that you have a big enough interest in order to actually take that litigation. And in that case, it's myself as a voter, but also the fact that I've got the backing of other voters saying, you know, hey, we want this question answered as well. So I'm going to pass over to Dave Martin, but that's why I mentioned Lady Carmichael speaking out that you were a voter. That to me is very significant because you recognise that. And I think that will influence our, influence our thinking on any counter arguments as to whether you were just a busybody. Yeah. Well, Dave, let's, bring, let's bring you in. Well, basically, as I was listening, Advocate General was making his, his comments at the time and then the judge uh, broke him off and said, wait a minute, don't you think it's more important that he was a voter? You could almost feel him sort of back, backing up uh, before he came back. Uh, yes, he's a voter, but but, but but that's no kind of important. Didn't actually see that, but he was trying to put forward his bit and make out the vote. But was it important? I thought, okay, that won't hurt him. So um, so Martin basically, the Lord Advocate uh, has been basically pockling to use a, a well-known Scottish word. He's been at it. I, I heard, uh, I don't know if it was you, I don't think it was you, O'Neill, said that he's wearing two silks. Uh, yeah, uh, so far uh, in the hearings, he's said that he's wearing two silks. He's referred to him as being two-faced. He's said that he's uh, playing a game of snakes and ladders. There's been quite a few swings that Aidan's taken in the proceedings, not just in this one, but in previous hearings as well. He, he, he tried to bring in something that he, they had already said he wasn't going to use, and then he decided to bring it back in again. Yeah. An article in the Herald today from Ian McWhorter, where the Lord Advocate's position is very, very much under scrutiny at the moment. I don't know, Martin, whether from just being involved with the legal profession, 
whether that is coming across because it strikes me it's bringing the whole thing into disrepute. Let me put it this way. I, I won't say the name of the person, but I, I know a lot of top lawyers in the Scottish legal profession. And it was uh, described to me when I met, having to mention, oh, we haven't seen the Lord Advocate yet. He's not appeared. That... Um, this individual re- relayed it back to me and said, just uh, the response was, uh, yeah, that's because there's not a TV camera present. So that is one of his colleagues in the legal arena, effectively saying that the only time you ever see the Lord Advocate is when there's a TV camera and when he knows he can win, uh, was the other comment that's been made to me as well. So it says a lot when he doesn't turn up for these proceedings and instead has somebody else represent him uh, proceedings such as this. So, but it, what's going on with, his office at the moment is um, is getting out of hand, and that's pretty much down to the it's pretty much down to the aberration uh, in the Scotland Act, which simultaneously makes the Lord Advocate the highest law officer in Scotland, but at the same time also makes him part of the Scottish Cabinet. So what you have is a Lord Advocate that doesn't really have a legal team of his own. You have what you have is him borrowing expertise from the Scottish Government Legal Directorate and sitting on the Cabinet now. Separation of powers just is totally antithetical to separation of powers to have a Lord Advocate that is both wearing a government minister's hat at the same time as also purporting to represent powers and the prerogatives and the, the, the standing of the, the Scottish Parliament at the same time. Because government needs and wants are not necessarily the same as Parliament's needs and wants. That's just the nature of the beast. But yeah, he, he's trying to sort of do this juggling act between the two while you have all these sort of you have all these other departments in the legal realm, parliament and government that are, seem to be crisscrossing and flipping, sleeping with others, each other effectively doing different tasks. And it's just a muddle and a mess. So it doesn't surprise me in the slightest if everything that's going on with all the other cases that I won't mention at the moment is purely down to the absolute mess that the the legal system is with regards to government and parliament in Scotland, which is all as a result of the Scotland Act, which, as you know, is a Westminster Act. So these sort of different conflicts of interest, they do no good. But then if you add on the possibility of professional misconduct, yeah, what does it say about our legal industry when a legal industry when you have the the highest law officer in the country effectively coming across as a complete and utter twerp to the electorate? Well, only that, Martin, it's, it's him admitting malicious prosecution in the Rangers case. Yeah. It's frightening that you have the most senior appointed person as a law officer mm-hmm. saying that he deliberately set out to get someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, one else could, no one else could withstand that, but there's obviously reasons why he's still there. Yeah, uh, I, I've not pulled, I don't think I've pulled, Aidan's certainly not pulled his punches when he's taken swings at the Lord Advocate in proceedings. I mean, some of the things he's written show that, hope I'm not out of line here, just in case Aidan sees it, but there is definite contempt there for the sort of stance he's been pulling. I mean, I've seen on at least three briefs in our case where we've had to describe things that the Lord Advocate's done as abuse of process. Uh, ex- a perfect example of what happened yesterday at the conclusion he tried to sneak a, a, a sorry a precedent in that we'd never seen and that uh, he'd never supplied to us. Right at the end, is you know sort of tried to slip it in for Lady Carmichael on on the end. We'd never had sight of it, and it's our right to see that as as parties to this case. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, my feelings with him is that I think he's an ass personally. I think he needs replaced, and I won't pull my punches on that. I think we need a new Lord Advocate because this one's. Deflated, you know, it's burst. It needs to be taken back to the shop. It's not part of the Scottish government. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, though, Alex, Alex Salmond. Yeah. Actually, when the Lord Advocate, because the Lord Advocate's always existed since the inception of the Scottish Parliament. In fact, the Lord Advocate existed long before the Scottish Parliament, yeah. uh, because you had the the Lord Advocate and the Shadow Lord Advocate were effectively cabinet and non-cabinet position. Uh, but yeah, he's got to go. Uh, and, and but Alex actually had a, a very wide separation between yeah. his cabinet and the Lord Advocate in the days when, when he was running the Scottish government, which you can clearly see for as a reason. But with a new government, there's very much of a, a closer relationship between Lord Advocate and, and Scottish government. Alex used to keep them at arm's length, and now we see exactly why during his administration. 
you know. And that's before anybody says anything. That's not a, a an Alex versus Nicola thing before anybody has it. That's just a, a simple comparison of the fact that he wasn't close in the last administration and he is close in the current administration. And back then there was very few problems with the Lord Advocate and now it's a complete shitstorm. Yeah. Wrap them. We need to phone UPS. We need to load them onto our track. Remember the air holes, obviously, and we need to ship them back to Westminster for at least a good overhaul and service. Martin, one of the things I had to learn was this, as we discussed earlier, was this idea of standing. The other uh-huh. one was the word declarators. Now, I don't want to dig into that in legal terminology, but what you're seeking basically is a declaration from a court that the Scottish Parliament is within its legal rights to hold a referendum, to start one off. One of the things that strike me as peculiar, and so this is a wee bit nerdy, but I think it's important. We've got the Scotland Act 1998, and then we had the Scotland Act 2016. And when that part was passed, there was a bit included which says, to abolish the Scottish Parliament, there has to be a referendum. And it strikes me as kind of nuts that we've got a piece of legislation within the Scotland Act which says there must be a referendum, and we've got an argument going on in court as to whether we can have a referendum. I don't want to go too deep into that. I just want to raise it as an issue that strikes me as peculiar. You've got one thing in one hand and an argument going on on whether it can be done on the other hand. Do you like to respond to that, my friend? Yeah. Sorry, I'm trying to come up with a response that doesn't involve swearing. But the long and the short of it is, yeah. Uh, welcome to the United Kingdom, people. Land of a th- was it land of a thousand uh, conflicts? In this case, yeah, exactly that. You know, on one hand, it can't be abolished without a referendum, but on the other hand, you can't have a referendum to talk about self autonomy. The two are kind of antithetical to each other. But the original layout was written by Labour and the Tories, and as we know, it is a skill set to become a member of one of their parties as to the ability to be able to argue diametrically opposing viewpoints simultaneously. So, yeah, there is, there's quite a few conflicts in the Scotland Act with regards to that. So, uh, you know, it is what it is, unfortunately. But our declarator concentrates specifically on the right of a referendum, and that's it. John, as Jerry said this morning, having seen the, the motion that's been, or, or sorry, the 11-point plan that the SNP have put up, that um, it completely contradicts the, the evidence that was given on behalf of the Lord Advocate yesterday. Yes. Uh, and, and I realised that uh, uh, you had a case two or three weeks ago asking for production of this draft bill uh, and they basically said they, they, they didn't have one and, and that expenses were awarded against you. And it, I think it was it was basically said again on right on Thursday. That, oh, no, that, no, no, no. Sorry, no. I, have to, I have to cut in there. That's actually a misconception. They didn't say it didn't exist. They just didn't admit it didn't exist. Which is the same as actually having it, but not admitting it exists. You right, okay. Right. <laughs> Semantics. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how they do it. They don't actually admit whether it exists. Basically, yeah, well, you know, we're not going to admit that it exists or it doesn't exist. We're just going to not admit that we can't admit that it's not going to exist or it does exist, you know? The judge refused to uh, force them to produce it. Yeah, but that's because she didn't know if it existed. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, no, I'm just kidding. And that, and that cost the crowdfund of 30,000 quid. That particular hearing, I wouldn't worry too much about. And the reason I would worry too much about it is because... What a lot of people don't realise is the minute that Lady, the, the minute that Lady Carmichael ruled against, see, everybody concentrates on the first declarator that we've sought that it is competent for the Scottish Parliament to have a referendum without the consent of Westminster. But we actually have a second declarator, and the second yeah. declarator is any bill that the SNP is passing uh, would that be legally competent to be passed, right? So there is actually two declarators mm-hmm. we're seeking. And that second one's really important because the minute Lady Carmichael ruled against the, uh, what should have happened, the process in this case, and we dispute it, and we could have appealed it right there and then, but if we had appealed that right there and then, what would have probably happened is that we would have delayed the main hearings back a lot of months. And there's a, there is a realisation that if we lose, we're going to appeal. That, that's just a, a, a definite. At the same time, if the Lord Advocate or the Advocate General lose, that they're probably going to appeal too because they like wasting people's money, time, effort and lying to the courts. So why not? Let's have a party. Everybody's operating from the assumption that there's probably going to be an appeal, although you never know, the UK government might surprise us. So we thought, well, there's no point in arguing the minutiae about that. 
Lady Carmichael turned round and she said at that point, I'm not giving you that document. The process should have been the opposition should have taken any bill in whatever form it was and put it in a brown envelope and sealed it. And then that would have been sent to Lady Carmichael directly, at which point we would have made an application for that envelope to be opened. At that point, she would have opened the envelope, read it, and she would have then decided whether it was pertinent to the case or not. Right? That's what should have happened. And that didn't happen. What happened is Lady Carmichael just went, nah, it's fishing, blah, 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 blah. So she actually yeah. broke with precedent when she did that. And the second she did that, she gave us automatic grounds for appeal against that decision. But we've decided not to appeal that because why would we waste the court's time in doing an appeal then that would delay this hearing yeah. uh, and then appeal that one when we can just as easily streamline the entire thing for the assistance of the court by appealing both at exactly the same time. She's also tied her hand because she can't give a ruling to the second declarator that we've asked, is this bill competent or not? Because she's not got the bill. She can't see it, so she can't tell if it's competent or not. So therefore, she can't rule on the second declarator. Can she not just refuse the declarator? Well, no, because she can't refuse it because the declarator is the declarator. It's asking for an assessment, one or the other. The only thing she can do is refuse to give a ruling on it, which isn't the same as denying it. In which case, she gives us automatic grounds for appeal. And the, and the, the first appeal would go to three judges in the inner house, is that right? That's right. It would end up in front of the inner house of court of session and it would be three judges. Because uh, a lot of the precedents we're using were actually set by them. So, Martin, would they have to refuse to open the envelope as well? Can that come up again at that point? It's unlikely, it's unlikely that that's going to happen because I have a sneaking suspicion that this bill is going to materialise anyway, considering the position change of a certain government. Again, so it's, uh, it's, I think it's going to materialise. I don't think it's going to be an issue at the next appeal. But if it does become an issue, um, with it being closer to the March release date anyway, then yep. the, court, the court will probably turn around and say, you know what, there's no real threat to this bill getting out there. Produce it. Or certainly send it to them so they can decide whether or not. Listen, maybe maybe for the benefit of a lot of people, I don't know whether this is true or not, there was a post, there was a question posted on Facebook about which courts were involved. Was it Scots courts or English courts? So just to be clear in this, Martin, I'm correct in saying that if it goes to the inner court, it's Scots law again. And if they decide to send it to what is called the Supreme Court, it is still jurisdiction jurisdiction under Scots law. Can we clarify that yes, for everyone? That's one hundred percent correct. In fact, it's actually most people won't realise, but Lady Dorian, who is the second highest judge in Scotland, and Lady Carlaway are actually sitting on the UK Supreme Court now. So we might very well get to the situation whereby the UK Supreme Court looks at the case and says, you know what? The inner house of court of session has ruled on this. We respect their decision. We're not even going to bother looking at it. And I actually think, and don't quote me on this, but I think the inner house of court of session has to be the ones to certify it up to the UK Supreme Court anyway. You know, there, there's a lot of different things. But what I can assure everybody of is that at each stage, it is Scots law that it comes under, not Just, English law. I think when you get into you, you and I first met in to do with trials. That's right, yeah. And I got your back at that time by saying, right, I'll wade my way through every legal case I can find and send it to you. And I think there's an awful lot of this, when, particularly when you go through the court record and they're quoting Whiteman or they're quoting AXA or they're quoting something else. They obviously understand exactly what the implications of all previous precedents of case law were. But it's yeah. very hard for the ordinary person to understand it. And I think the fundamental point is, 1707, there was a decision taken that Scotland has its own legal system. And thank God they made that decision because it's crucial to where you are at the moment. It is, yeah. In fact, I mean, there was quite a few decisions in that act. One that has always been my favourite is the fact that the ecclesiastical system was kept very much separate. The religious system was kept very much separate. Um, and one that people don't actually realise with regards to the religious side of things is that all of the waterways in Scotland, the water itself is actually ward of the church. It's not actually owned by the government. And that's the very reason that we don't have water meters in Scotland is because every time that somebody suggested it, the, court, the church has turned around and told them to get stuffed. That's why in England, they have water meters and up here we don't. Uh, all we do is pay for cleaning the water, not actually apparently a charge for the water. So... Uh, yeah, the the fact that we have our own separate legal system is not just good in terms of, you know, sort of 
poking the UK government and certainly defending ourselves from it. But it means that in every single treaty and every single agreement that the UK has signed since the inception of the Union, there has always been a statutory automatic recognition of Scotland's legal system being separate and distinct from the rest of the UK. So the Scottish legal system has, it's internationally recognised, it is respected around the world. In fact, there's a lot of presidents in a lot of different countries are based on the Scottish legal system. Um, So on the world stage, our legal system has a a, a unique and separate sort of standing. There's a sense coming back to that word with the rest of the world that stands alongside the English system, not one on top of the other. So at that, in terms of international recognition for any result from this case, from the referendum, where the court is involved, well, their standing will be taken effectively as gospel on the world stage, and there's that international recognition. I hope Dave's memory's up, but Aidan O'Neill put that very succinctly, I think, towards the end, about no matter how high you may be. Aye. No matter how high you are, the people stand over you. No matter how low you are, the, the law will protect you. Yeah. And that That's... strikes me as absolutely central to what Scots law is about. It's very simply the people are sovereign. Yeah. And that's not something that Aidan just says off the cuff. He genuinely believes that. To, to put it in perspective for you, when I first, re- when I first retained Balfour and Manson to write the original, the very first opinion, and he'd, I'd gone, I'd actually went in reverse. I didn't go to Balfour and Manson first. I did something you're not supposed to do. I went to Aidan first, the QC. And I says, we've got this case, da 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 And he says, yeah, all he did was he came back with a simple reply saying, yes, it would be something I would be interested in, but it's inappropriate for you to contact me directly. You should have an instructing solicitor. Okay, no problem. So then I contacted Balfour and Manson and brought in a lane motion and hurting. So... They commissioned the first opinion, and the first opinion was concise, sharp, detailed, uh, and very uh, very focused uh, in terms of a legal opinion, but it was bulky. It was very much on the bulky side from what you would normally expect, um, and that told me straight away that that's always an indication, especially in the legal realm, that there was no attempt to truncate this. This was a, a genuinely concentrated on a, a lot of time spent putting this together it wasn't just you're like oh it's another case it was a i'm focusing on this one and he did and comments when that was then passed back to Balfour Manson to be said to me was a lot of work's been put into this and from that point to now every single argument every single time has gone through this process of refinement the way we the way we've worked back and forth between client and uh, law, law firm has been brilliant because they know that I understand all the stuff that's in the documents, there's no uh, them having to waste time explaining things to me. It's a case of I read it. If I've got any comments, I put the comments next to the thing and send it straight back to them. Uh, and they'll come back with either a yet yeah or a no, or we've got this. So we've, there's this sort of shorthand has been developed. Uh, bearing in mind that we've never actually stepped foot in the same room once because of the pandemic. Yeah. We've only actually ever spoken on the phone about five times during the entire case. Every single bit of communication has been shorthand via electronic communication, via email. So there's a passion there. I can tell uh, from the legal side that, you know, they're putting their heart and soul into this. Aidan's just worked himself to the bone. Uh, Cindy and Lauren and uh, there's the other, you've got David, uh, Aidan, who's the senior QC. You've got David, who's his junior. Uh, You've got Elaine and Cindy and Lauren. Um, Elaine's obviously the chair of Balfour and Manson and Cindy and Lauren are, are two solicitors there as well. The five of them have, have just, it's been phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. So, Two issues I want to raise, Martin. One is timescales. But before that, it's funding. I put a post up on Facebook, which is very simply, it's what you are doing and the people that I've supported are doing in terms of funding are giving the people a say in something that is their future, everyone's future, Scotland's future. How, how is the funding looking times, the timescales that you might think are involved? I've made a commitment that I'll only ask when we need. And uh, recently I've asked. So 
Uh, in fact, as you know, I've done it in three stages, a separate fundraiser and then a, a new fundraiser and then I reopened that that one. So I'll never ask for more than we need. And, and the only way we can play this, unfortunately, is we do a consolidation every sort of uh, month uh, in this case. Uh, that'll obviously accelerate now that there's hearings and things like that. And with that consolidation, they'll come back and they say we've got 50,000 or we've got 30,000 or we've got 70,000 in the account. But this, 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 and this is going to require this, 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 this. So what they actually do is they get, a, a, it's actually the, the company's order and he comes up with a sort of a, a rough estimate of what things are going to cost. Our original estimate was based off of a comment made by Lady Poole in the hearing for the protected expenses order, which she didn't grant, on what the estimated costs of this type of case would be. Um, so that's what we based our first one off. And then the second, uh, because there's been so much resources wasted by the UK and Scottish governments and the Lord Advocate, who might or might not be the Scottish government, um, so the, it's been a case of there's been additional cost in, in the interim between the parts that should have been there that, that have had all this bulk put to it. So it is really a case of we have to play it by you. Um, and it's yeah. the only way we can do it. So if I say we need da 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 da, da that's been a direct warning from one of the lawyers. Listen, that's again, let, let's asking. make let's make clear to everyone that's watching this: this money, when it's put in, goes to Balfour Mansion. It is to pay them and through them to pay Aidan O'Neill. It's not it's not a Martin Keating's fundraising effort. It's Balfour and Mansion for a purpose. Yeah, it's, we chose crowd justice for a reason, and that's because you can't even put up a, a crowdfunder with them unless you have written confirmation from the law firm that they've been retained to act on your behalf. So that's the first stage. Then your fundraising page goes up. So I had to go to Balfour and Manson first, and then I went to crowd justice, and then I put the page up after they'd got a written confirmation from the law firm that the law firm was retained. Uh, crowd justice then... Uh, you then run it like you would any normal crowd just, uh, crowdfunder. Uh, people donate to it, and that's it. And then what happens is every week, uh, all the payments that have actually been, um, that have cleared, they get transferred directly from Crowd Justice right to Balfour and Manson's client account. At the end of the case, if any costs are recovered or any there's any excess funds left over, then what happens is Balfour and Manson transfer that money straight back to crowd justice and crowd justice then put it into the access to justice fund for assisting people that are in some of the worst situations in our country um, with legal expertise to try and help them dig themselves out of hell effectively so your money will uh, the money has two purposes one it's funding this litigation direct with Balfour and Manson uh, we never see the money, it goes straight to them, it's audited and accounts are exchanged and all that sort of stuff. And two, at the conclusion of it, if we win, costs that are recovered will go back to crowd justice to go and help other people that are facing dire consequences right now as a result of this pandemic. So your money will help your country twice effectively. I want to hear Lord Cooper come from you. That, that, that's where that was going. <laughs> Well, basically, I, I sat through the, the two days and I thought, when's Lord Cooper going to come in? When's Lord Cooper going to come in? Because there's no way in a million years you could possibly go away and say that a voter does not have standing and yet a parliamentarian should, when under the kind of system that we've got, the people are sovereign, in which case the, the Cooper ruling has to come out in it. And sure enough, about 45 minutes before the end, it came out like a blunderbuss. How do you feel that you're standing as a, as a sovereign Scot as opposed to a busybody? How do I feel my standing is compared to a busybody? Just because somebody's a busybody doesn't mean they don't have standing in something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, it's kind of like asking the question, how do you feel about getting called a pleb? Well, the root base of it, the word pleb is derived from plebeian, which just means common worker. So... Why does that embarrass me? It's exactly the same here. My attitude towards this is just the sheer arrogance. The exact phrase that was used by the Lord Advocate, yeah, there's that name again, and his original pleadings on behalf of the Scottish Government, which were withdrew when they dropped out, was it's not for the pursuer to stand in the shoes of parliamentarians. 
what if what? So um, my attitude to that was, uh, I, I tried, their shoes were too small. So they decided to take their seat instead. No, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's unfortunately, I don't look good in clown shoes. I just thought that is the height of arrogance. At the end of the day, politicians, although they keep using words like power, that's not their job. Their job is representation. This is supposed to be a representative democracy. Sovereignty is supposed to be derived from the people that when sovereignty, by definition, is where power is derived from. So you can't be a politician and expect that you don't answer to the electorate. That's just not how it works. You know, a representative democracy is a politician is supposed to be in parliament to represent the people and represent their needs and their wants and turning around and saying, you can't ask reasonable legal questions of your, you know, of your government and of your parliament. Well, that, sorry, that is just the most arrogant, stupid statement that I have ever heard in my entire life. You've just taken me into where I was heading next was this, you can't wear the shoes of a parliamentarian. That came out a lot in the thing where I think it was the Advocate General was making the comment that he was using MPs, MSPs and MEPs and he said, right, in these cases, only an MP could raise the legal action. And you sit down and say, hang on a minute, for hundreds of years, people weren't allowed to vote unless you actually owned a bit of land and you were, and you were allowed to vote. Then we broke through that and said, right, that it's becoming a bit more. Then women had to fight for the vote. And when I heard these things about you can't wear the shoes of a parliamentarian, I said, we're going backwards if we think that's the way it goes. Yeah. Exactly on the basis uh, you've said. It's, it's an arrogant sense of automatic self-entitlement. Like asking, was it uh, the, like you're not allowed to ask reasonable questions of your government or your parliament like it's some fiefdom reserved to those that were selected by their party and sent to, to the parliament because people... People in elections in this country don't vote for the best candidate. I'm sorry to say. What we do is we vote for the least worst candidate. Think that I don't think that's even true. You're, you're onto a hobby horse of mine. Don't get me started. Yeah. The problem with representative democracy is the problem we're facing in trying to get a referendum through. Yeah. Because if you and I went in and said, I want to speak to my MSP, Dave went in and spoke to his MSP, and I asked them a question about this, we'd get a different answer. The way I see it, Martin, is if, you, if you've been on any of the marches, every single person has answered a question, what do you want? Independence. When, when do you want it now? Yeah. That is representative of the people. I'm not saying, when you start getting into the argument of the referendum, when Boris Johnson says no, he's also saying no to the people that want to vote no against independence. That's right, yeah. <laughs> He's not representing the people. He's representing his own narrow interests. And that is also true of what's going on in Scotland at the moment. Well, I would probably expand on that as well. And I would say a person votes for whatever candidate it is for the party that they're supporting, right? And those MSPs are elected to the chamber and they take up their place. There was... A tweet uh, sort of fired it off in my head the other day. There was a tweet sent out uh, by uh, Joanna Cherry in which she confirmed to somebody that had asked her the question, were you briefed on this 11-point plan before it was actually released? So just in the last couple of days. And she actually went back and she says, I can confirm we were not briefed on this. And I sat there and thought, I says, well, that is a major policy shift and a major policy announcement out, not just to the party, but also to the electorate in general. And they've not briefed their own elected MPs and MSPs who are there to represent us. So how is that representative democracy? Because that's not representative. That's not representative of the electorate's wants and needs, because we're not getting to know about it. Because our elected representatives not getting to know about it. That's representative of the party leadership of the particular party that's in power. Representative democracy, it's antithetical to the entire idea. So at the end of the day, if you want to ask reasonable questions about it, you've got a choice between, like I said, a petition or taking it to court. So 
there's actually more of that that uh, statement is actually the morning at the, the assembly. Basically, um, Joanna Cherry was talking on Messenger saying, look, we've had no had any consultation of this. Nobody's asked me about it. And at the end of the day, basically, it looks completely at odds with what the Lord Advocate said uh, in the Keaton's case a couple of days ago. That is um, totally different. After that, they shut, they shut down the chat box to stop them complaining. <laughs> Aye, there you go. Well, I, I'm not an SNP member, so I wasn't at the assembly. So, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't comment one way or another on that. If it did happen, yeah, it basically he's argued exactly the opposite of what was said in the 11-point plan when it was put out the day after the court case called in court. So, you have to ask yourself, is, you have to genuinely ask yourself the question, wait a minute, did the Lord Advocate just... Uh, there's no way that somebody puts something that serious out to the press unless they're either lying to the electorate about the fact that they've got a solid basis for putting that out in the first place, or they have actually taken legal advice on it, in which case the Lord Advocate or the Scottish Government Legal Department would know about it. That process doesn't take twenty less than 24 hours. That takes days, maybe even weeks, for it to be gone through. Yeah. So that may, would mean that if they did get legal advice, those uh, the Lord Advocate's re- representatives walked into that room with somebody in, the, somebody in that department knowing damn well that this was going to happen uh, in the National on Saturday. In which case, that could very well be misleading a judge, a Lord Ordinary, a member of our highest court in Scotland. Well, that was the thing. If you look at our pleadings, we have continuously, continuously used the phrase, "You are co- the, the Lord Advocate is called upon under his duty of candour. And there's a reason we said that, because if he didn't respond, it would be seen as a lie and it wouldn't you know, go down too well. A lie of omission is still a lie, you know what I mean? So if he has lied to the judge, I hope she spanks him for it, good and proper. The question does have to be asked, did he know? And if he did know, um, did he know enough that it rose to the level of actually lying to a judge? Uh, and if he didn't, it's really incompetent. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, basically it's a double-edged sword. He's pretty screwed on this one at the end of the day. Um, but on one hand, he looks like he was complacent and didn't know what was going on, and on the other hand, it looks like he's either lied to the uh, sorry, he's lied to a judge. So he was defended very well with Advocate General and Worst. Well, yeah, I think that's probably because the Advocate General uh, had snack time in the previous hearings. Namely, the Lord Advocate was doing his job very well for the Advocate General. If you were to summarise our. Uh, the different papers that are being exchanged back and forward in each motion that's been done throughout the entire course of this case so far effectively went like this. We believe it to be X, Y, Z, and we put it forward. The Lord Advocate would then come back and go, bag of wasps, you know, attack, 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 attack. And the the Advocate General, who is the UK government's counsel, would go, what he said. (laughs) That is basically what we've seen from the start of this case. It's a case of the Lord Advocate goes ballistic at us, and then the, the Advocate General, who represents the UK government, goes, what he said. And most of that, Martin, as I understand it, wasn't to argue the merits of your case. It was to argue the merits of whether the case should be heard at all. Things, That's like, right. things like standing, things like you're just a, a busybody, etc. The central argument just never came over. I, I, no. Having read it this morning, I still don't think it's come over. No, but he never once addressed the actual matter. If you actually look at our pleadings uh, for this for this case, you will know that the declarator we have sought, we've sought it what's called the plano, which effectively Latin for unanswerable. In other words, what we are saying there is we want the if we can get past all this crap about uh, standing that the Lord Advocate's going, which by the way, it looks really good on a court summons if you don't understand it that there's nine things that they want it dismissed on. But what you don't actually realise is those nine things are actually the same thing, just worded differently. If you actually look at the precedent that that's talking about, it's actually academic, hypothetical, premature. It's actually on the same line, on the same precedent that brings that about. So um, so it's just bluster, the entire thing. So if we can get over that, because they've not actually asked any, they've not actually responded to our opinion that we can hold a second referendum, we, it would be unanswerable. Therefore, we're asking the court to just grant the decree automatically, to grant, grant the declarator automatically. So, uh, but yeah, it's just like, listen, 
I don't think that you as a voter should have the right to ask reasonable legal questions of your government or your parliament. And, oh, by the way, I'm not even going to bother responding to, to what you've written, you know. Snobbish behaviour, arrogance, automatic self-entitlement. I'd like to cover two more points. Uh, one being, you, you, you managed to actually sit through the case, watching it on a TV while we were all listening to phones, and I gather... Um, <laughs> Uh, it was it was a bit of a comedy show for you because you were able to see everybody's faces, the arguments oh, yes. have been made. Would you like to tell us like what it was like? I'm not actually sure. I can tell you, but what I can say is that Aidan O'Neill was very animated. Uh, uh, and you, the thing is, though, you can tell. I, I I don't know if it was deliberate or what, but he tipped the camera up when he wasn't speaking, so it was there. So all you saw was the top of his head, um, and I think that was probably because he was miming things that might have been inappropriate. <laughs> you know, so, so all you saw was his head bobbing, right? And every time the Lord Advocate said something contentious, all you saw was Aidan's head sort of bobbing above the the, the camera for a second. At one point, uh, I, I had to uh, send an email to council saying uh, I can read his lips. So, <laughs> so I'm assuming the other people on the video conference can. But yeah, it was it was entertainment, entertainment watch. Uh, the Lord Advocate, the Advocate General submission. Well, that was more like watching paint dry. But certainly, when Aidan O'Neill, uh, when Aidan was talking, um, yeah, it was it was very, you know, there's a lot of. Uh, but yeah. So, uh, so, it, was, it was some experience to see it. If we, if we had to ask you, what do you think it'll be? Do you think they'll find for you, against you, or will they pass it on? Just just, just for a... Because we've all got our own ideas from what we've seen in the air. I would rather not say. <laughs> uh, no, but the... Uh, all I can say is that there's three different ways this can go, yeah. and it doesn't matter what happens, because we were expecting one of all three, if that makes sense. You know, we were always yeah. expecting this to go to the next stage. It's yeah. all three make no difference of where we're going next, effectively, yeah. which is probably most likely to the inner house. Um, but I don't want to say one way or another because I don't want to piss off the judge <laughs> by preempting what she's got to say. So well, I'm, 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 I'm used to I'm used to pissing off judges, so I'm going to have a wee bit of prediction. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, I don't want to piss her off and make her think that I, I'm, I'm saying things like uh, that, you know, I think she's going to bottle it and she's not got a backbone and things. You know, that sort of stuff. So Being circumspect is the right attitude, Martin. What will yes. be? I, my favourite phrase is case are, what will be, will be. Yeah. Listen, two, two things. One, you've got the people into court asking a question. We'll find out the answer in due course, but sure. whenever you need funding, let us know, and you've got the backing. Sure. One wee simple request on behalf of Dave and I, as long as it doesn't involve funding, we'd love to have Aidan O'Neill QC <laughs> on the 12 heads. So if you ever get the chance, please ask. Um, it's, it's a complicated one for Aidan. It comes down to the fact that as I am effectively his client, he has certain rules that he has to follow uh, with regards to, to being a legal professional. So there's a lot of things he obviously can't speak to. So I'll say it's not outside the realms of possibility. I'll certainly put the request forward. I'm just saying that if it does happen, it's likely going to be quite a while before it would. So He himself, not a part of the case, is questioning the position of the Lord Advocate. Ian McWhorter did it this morning in the Herald. Yeah. The legal profession have an interest in whether or not the, the position of the Lord Advocate, both as a criminal prosecutor and a government minister, can now be called into question. It's that type of thing I'd like to hear his views on. Oh, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. it's probably something that he would be interested in, but there's a, it's really quite complicated because with... Aidan's position being as it is, a lot of the public, a lot of the, a lot of the cases he takes are public law cases. Mm. So that's why you tend to find that a lot of the QCs and certainly a lot of the lawyers that are top of their game in Scotland don't even have Twitter accounts is because they, they yeah. like to keep very much... Listen, the, the, the three of us have one thing in common. We're cheeky enough to ask questions. That's my question, Martin. The thing is, though, with Aidan, you, you have to be ready for a surprise because the answer to the question will never be what you expect it to be. So <laughs> that's it's one of the things about Aidan. So... Uh, yeah, and I think yesterday was the perfect example of it. There was Lord Advocate was expecting one thing and got another. Um, 
<laughs> Although I have to admit the uh, the little bit of trouble between him and the judge in the first 15 minutes was... <laughs> was I missed maybe that. Just I bit too uh, simple terms, it was an argument about a timetable. She says, uh, do you want to go first, Mr. Johnston? Mr. Johnston being, you know, the Advocate General's counsel. Uh, and Aidan stepped in at that point and says, uh, actually, we had agreed a timetable between the lawyers. Because that's actually normal. That, that is normal. Lawyers all decide to... Together uh, from all the different parties to do it in a slightly different order if it's going to be more conducive to the mm. different parties in the case. So Aidan simply mentioned that, and then uh, there was a bit of a scuffle because the Advocate General and the the Lord Advocate couldn't decide whether it was a certain amount of, a certain amount of time, which was one hour, and either uh, Lady Carmichael wasn't too impressed, so she she basically uh, effectively ended the conference call there and then, and then insisted that uh, they had to shall we say, put it in writing to her before she would resume. So she gets an email after it's all been settled. Job's done. On May the 6th, Martin. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, you, you might be able to stand in the shoes of a parliamentarian. Uh, no, I'm just going to... No, what I'm hoping is to take his seat. Screw his shoes, I want his seat. <laughs> Preferably a shiny red one or a shiny blue one. So it's basically... Is it Central Scotland and Fife? Uh, Mid-Scotland and Fife is the... Mid-Scotland and Fife. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting race, that's for sure. But yeah, if I could get, this is not me, uh, I'll put it out, this is not me campaigning now. I'm just no. saying my feelings, okay? I've started I've started something with this case. Uh, simple as that. Uh, I want to see it through from here all the way to a bill for a referendum so we can vote on our independence. And it's that's my only driving force behind this. I, I want us to be heard, a ruling in our favour, and then the opportunity to, to take it home. Because there's nothing worse than thinking that a job's unfinished. You know what I mean? So... That's my goal, that's my aim, and that's it, period. And will we, will we be seeing any more forward as one uh, rallies in Dunfermline the next year? Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's a hard one. You, you, you all understand the, the position with regards to my family. Uh, my mm. mother has advanced multiple sclerosis. She was a nurse for 20 years, so I've had the drill um, with regards to this sort of thing. And I, I have health issues myself, but it's a case of I won't put anybody at harm for a rally. I'm sorry, I just yeah, won't. Yeah, it, it's, it, that's just it. It's a very sensitive subject because if COVID got into this house, it would yeah. kill both myself and my mother. So uh, there's a very high likelihood of that. So really, it's a case of I won't make a promise that I can't keep with regards to a rally. But what I will say is if the vaccines come fast enough and quick enough and we can eradicate this little bugger, then, yeah, they'll definitely 100% be a rally. Uh, but it will all be dependent on, on how bad yeah. we are with regards to COVID-19 because I will not put a single life at risk um, for an attendance at a rally. We might do something digitally. I'm not ruling that out either. So uh, we might go for something digital or you know, we might grab a projector and go and photobomb the side of the, the home office building, you know, with uh, wood pictures of uh, David Cameron and pigs or so. You know, we'll come up with something. We will come up with something. But yeah, it's really all up in the air on that side of things. <laughs> and on that, Lady, thank you for coming along, Martin. No problem. <laughs> it's been an experience. Thanks, Martin. Uh, I, I'm hoping it'll be before Tuesday, but it might be sort of more towards Thursday before we hear something. Because by the time the ruling comes back, we get advanced copies and then there's a 24-hour notice and then it's published publicly. So um, so it, we might be looking sort of end of the week rather than at the start of the week. Um, but it's likely that the parties to the case will know sort of in the first couple of days of the week. We shall see. Thanks very much, Martin.